listening to Passion Pod 20 with Delayed Gratification. So Delayed Gratification is a quarterly magazine. It's produced by my company, The Slow Journalism Company. And what it seeks to do is, every three months, to draw a line in the sand, look back over the news from that quarter, work out what was important and revisit it. With the idea being that you would find new perspectives on news that people have already reported, and then also flag up new stories that the rest of the media missed. And we kind of felt that there was this gap for a really nice, really beautiful printed magazine, which would take its time, which would go back with the benefit of hindsight and perspective. And what we find quite a lot of the time is that we get very different stories out of it. So actually, if, for example, you've been swept up in a big drama, like, I don't know, the London riots, you're constantly being asked for your opinion. And generally you give kind of quite a knee-jerk reaction. And it's so interesting to go back to people kind of three months later and get their considered opinion. And very often you get a very, very different view from them. Having read the, the most recent edition... Yeah. It does exactly that. It's making yeah. you look at something very, very differently. Yeah, but we also like to, you know, there's there's a lot of other stuff we like to do in terms of kind of more fun stuff. The mags are always absolutely full with beautiful infographics. And we kind of like to take a lot of data from the last three months and kind of pull it all together and new stories emerge from that. Well, I love that. Mm. And the things like your film thing. And oh, the film formula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just really different ways of laying stuff out. Yeah, we're, we're kind of blessed by having the best designer that I've ever met, being our, our designer, this guy called Chris Tate. And he's just outrageously talented. Just absolutely fantastic. He does all of our illustrations and, and infographics and makes them look so beautiful. So yeah. how did it all come about? Right. So I launched this company, this slow journalism company, with um, my friend Marcus. And we met when we were both 22 in Dubai. And we were working on Time Out Dubai. Dubai. And it was kind of our first job out of university and spent a lot of time working together on magazines. We were kind of both of us kind of back and forth from Dubai and so on. And then we both ended up in London and uh, spent a lot of time talking in the pub and trying to work out what we would really love to do for a magazine. And we came up with this idea and kind of roped in some old friends as well to be part of it. And, uh, and then roped in Chris, our designer. And then we launched in January 2011. So we're on our sixth issue now. So when you started, yeah. were you working full-time still for Time Out, or how did you make it work financially? No, so Marcus was working full-time and uh, still is. He's the international content director at Time Out, and he kind of does you know evenings and weekends on it. And I've always been freelance um, since we started it, and so I've done some stuff for Time Out London and, um, and various other kind of people. But yeah, so it's just been a question of, sort of keeping enough money coming in through doing freelance stuff, and, uh, and then you know just doing kind of DG as... As much as possible. But but the nice thing is I've just literally, just today, I've sort of cleared the decks completely for the next six months. I'm not going to do any other work at all. And I'm just going to do DG because I think it's got to the stage now where I can afford to do that and where I think it can really take it on to the next level, really kind of invest some time and some love in it and, yeah, do some really exciting things. I'm so excited by this. It, like, literally yeah. forces a smile onto my face. Oh, good. <laughs> it's like perfect passion pod material. Amazing. Excellent. So this is a big decision. The problem is it's very, very difficult to do what you want to do in the time left over from you know doing what you have to do. But, but actually also, that I'm really glad that we started the way that we did because it was kind of sustainable and it wasn't too much pressure. And actually, if you've got a quarterly magazine and you've got really good people that you're working with, then you can do it and you have a massive big push at the end. But then you get to a stage where actually there's just so much more that I want to do with it. And I think, you know, having got six issues in... We've got a really nice loyal readership. We've got a really good subscriber base. And we have lots of kind of positive things coming back. And I feel that now is a solid enough base to, to, to make it full time. So how do you go about getting your subscribers? How have you done that? At the beginning, it was kind of word of mouth to a certain extent. I mean, we did a certain amount of PR just in terms of sending out press releases. And we got some great coverage. Doing kind of um, some insert swaps with great magazines like Slightly Fox has been really good. 
and we're going to do a bit more of that. Our kind of our, our lucky break was very early on when Marcus went on the Today program and sort of had a five minute slot. It was amazing. So I was I was listening to him on internet radio and I was also watching our subscriptions feed and it was the most amazing thing because in the week before we'd had maybe like four or five new subscriptions and then in the five minutes he was on we had ten new ones come through. And in the half hour afterwards, we had sort of three thousand pounds worth of new subscription came through. And all throughout the day, it was the, it was just the best. <laughs> Things probably, you know, the exception of maybe my wedding day, it was the best day of my life because careful what you say there. I was <laughs> yeah, like, come exactly on now. Steady. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, every time you refreshed, there were kind of three or four new subscriptions throughout the day. That was brilliant. But we've not been particularly professional about it. Partly, I think, because we're editorial people. We like making beautiful magazines, and we're not brilliant at doing PR and marketing. And you know, we just don't enjoy it, so we do less of it. But obviously, that's daft for a business obviously you need to do a lot lot more of it but yeah. I imagine that's what your original focus is is also when you're building up a product that base needs to be stable and able to, for it to be marketed yeah. or sold yeah that's very true and also in a way it's quite nice when it's not the main thing that you need to make money out of because you just put so much more of yourself into it. <laughs> I mean, you know, when something does become your job, then to a certain extent, mentally, you kind of rebel against it. And, and when it's just your passion, your love, then you just pour all of your time into it because you're having such a great time. There is always that argument, isn't there, yeah. about whether it's the right thing to convert into Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think, for, from my point of view, I don't think it make any difference, actually, because I just love doing it so much. We've got this tiny little office... We've got this, you know, three big boards and we just plot it out and it's a very painstaking process because it's a proper sort of jigsaw of a magazine to pull together. But it's great. What would you say your biggest challenges have been? There's been lots of technical stuff I didn't think about and I really ought to have done and sort of plotted it out. There's sort of some duff and technical stuff with, with subscriptions. It's actually quite difficult to do a process whereby people can easily uh, resubscribe and that becomes a proper faff. It's not been particularly difficult so far. It's all been quite nice. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's not a cheap thing to do to set up a print magazine because you know, fifty percent of your cost of physically making the product and 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 sort of sending it out there. But you know, I'm searching for stuff. It's not been particularly difficult. It's just been really nice. <laughs> that's, that's the best answer ever. Let's just stick with that. <laughs> you said that five minutes ago. Yeah. Um, how did you go about finding your printer? Is it a printer that you knew already? Um, so actually, what we did was we compared so many from across the place. And we found these really brilliant guys in Wales called Westdale. And they've done some really, really beautiful magazines. And they've got great paper stock and really, really just nice people to work with. Yeah. One thing I've loved about reading it is yeah. holding it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just feels Very lovely. Yeah, exactly. So it's all about, you know, you're supposed to... This is the thing is that, you know, print magazines are, have been having such an incredibly sort of tough time of it. The, the internet has, you know, just sort of stripped away a lot of the things that they used to do best. And so quite a lot of them have reacted by trying to bring down costs. And, you know, that makes their paper less nice. It makes it feel less good. We've kind of reacted by going the other way. So actually saying, look, what can print do that the internet can't? And, like, print can look good and feel good and smell good. The internet doesn't smell good. Like, this does. And also, do you know what? If I'm going to be honest, oh. I'd love to be seen reading this on the tube. That's good. Because I think I'd feel quite cool. Yeah, definitely. Will that put people off? Maybe I shouldn't say that. No, 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 definitely. We, we should get you on a tube reading it. I'm not <laughs> hoping that I'm going to see somebody reading it on the tube, but I haven't so far. We get a lot of people reading it on plane flights, but um, I think we also have lots of people sort of keeping it in the toilet and just, you know, like tackling it a little bit at a, at a time. Perfect it's nice. It's, it's good reading. reading. But that's such a part of your selling point or your USP, I imagine. Because it's a quarterly magazine, yeah. you'd be lovely to come back to like a book almost yeah 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 exactly I mean it's you know one way that we pitch it to people as well is it's a very slow magazine or a very fast history book you know and the whole thing is designed to be kind of kept it's kind of it's beautiful and it's you know when you put them together you see yeah, the, the, spines. Kind of, the spines all it's add up lovely. to it kind of thing I mean you just thought of everything 
Well, it's our designer. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's just, he's just absolutely brilliant. How do you find your contributors for it? I mean, you've got, you say you've got a network, you know, you've got your core team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. is it, so do you ask people to write specific articles or do specific pieces or? Well, we're really lucky. We have a lot of people pitching stuff to us. And because we've, we've been around for quite a while, we know lots of kind of journalists, lots of great writers. Yeah, I mean, we do come up with quite a lot of ideas ourselves and then find experts who can write about them. And so we do stuff like uh, Moments That Matter. There's generally sort of five or six really kind of key moments that happened throughout any quarter. So um, one of them was the election of Putin on March the 4th. And we did a great interview with this guy, Cyril Tushy, who's done a documentary about Mikhail Khodorovsky. And, you know, so here's a guy, an incredibly brave guy, a documentary filmmaker, who's made a film about one of Putin's enemies and is, you know, is kind of out there in Moscow speaking openly and just him talking about the atmosphere in Moscow at the time of the election. But also what's, what's really nice is that he, he doesn't just tell you how he felt at the time, but he also talks about how things have unfolded since then. And so we find a lot of those people who've been, who've been intimately part of something and then really ask for their considered view afterwards. Because everything's so incredibly quick and because stories are being broken on Twitter so much uh, by journalists but also by people who aren't journalists, journalists are finding it very difficult to work out where it is that they add value. So actually back in the day, they would have been the main conduit through which the news came. They would have time to filter and sift, talk to experts, take the time, give some sort of more considered judgment. Now they're just desperately, desperately trying to get stuff out. And, you know, people have incredibly tight deadlines to get stories out and they're just rushing to be the first to put it online. And that isn't good for journalism. And journalists don't like that generally. And what we found is a lot of them, you know, are really keen to write for us because, you know, we, we do longer form journalism. We do, you know, we're ha- quite happy to have a, a lovely three or four or five thousand word piece. We'll work with people, we'll edit it properly, we'll lay it out beautifully and we'll print it really, really nicely. And, you know, we'll do stories that they can't kind of place anywhere else because they're sort of too kooky or they're not timely or whatever it might be. And, uh, it's giving yeah. a journalist more of a platform, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And it's a platform for doing stuff that they really like doing, which is taking their time and thinking about stuff and not having to rush stuff out. I mean, our, our slogan is, last the breaking news. And that's kind of what we are. You know, we're not by any means trying to kind of get the story out first. We just want to get it out last and get the kind of the last word on it. You know, but we'd be the first to admit that we are just as kind of glued into the constant updates. And you want to follow the story, but you also want sometimes to step back and have kind of a bit of a screen break as well. You spend all your day in front of a computer and you try and catch up on the news and so on in bits in between your work. And then you do it on the phone on the way home. And then you sit and watch on the telly when you get home at night. And actually you spend your entire day in front of the screen. It's quite nice to go off to the, the bath or the park or wherever with your copy of DG that smells nice and just read it slowly. What's the best thing do you think you've learned from doing this? Well, I think the really interesting thing for me is that we're just, we're just at a, a point at the moment in publishing where everybody's just still grappling with how on earth they make it work, how they make money. And you have um, some really big media companies which have dozens and dozens of different magazine brands, they're finding it very, very difficult to, to kind of keep going, you know, because people are so used to getting things for free. You know, people are giving out magazines for free in the streets in London. People have only a certain amount of, of time to spend on things. Potentially, people are going to start doing stuff on iPad, but then, you know, there's all sorts of costs associated with developing stuff for iPad, and you, you still have to make your original content. And you've still got these huge, great big buildings filled with journalists who are expensive, you know, and, and what's kind of happening is... While the, the the big guys work out what's going on, there's been this incredible upsurge in the last couple of years, which we sort of inadvertently became part of, of independent magazines. Like people who are really, really, really passionate about something, getting together with, with friends, making magazines and finding ways to make them profitable, you know, on, on relatively small circulations and doing other things on the side. I, I don't know if you know um, Stack Magazines. It's run by this guy, Steve. 
um, Steve Watson's fantastic guy and he just loves magazines very passionate about it and what he does is if you take a subscription out with stack magazines then every month he'll send you a copy of a new independent magazine sourced from somewhere around the world. So it's brilliant. So you can like, you know, one day you can have this amazing bike magazine from Scandinavia and the next day you've got some kind of cool indie music magazine from New York and it's really, really cool. What a clever idea. It's a really good idea. Yeah, he's doing really, really well from it. So, and that again has been fueled by that there's been so many launches of, of really exciting mags and people doing really innovative stuff and... But that's you know, the moment we're in at the moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, passion pods or any of these things yeah. in every different niche department whether it's street food whether it's fashion there seems to be this incredibly creative exciting time but I guess the big change and the big issue is how people are making an income from it or back to what we said earlier, is yeah. it something that they're doing just because they love doing yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there's a there's a real mix of that. I mean, some people I think are, are making kind of decent money. Some people are making it work somehow with freelance stuff. But there's a real excitement about it. And I think you know, in a, in a few years' time, a certain number of magazines, I hope not DG, but will have fallen by the wayside, and then a certain number of them will really have become quite established. Um, and at the same time, I think you're going to see quite a lot of mainstream magazines from from big uh, publishers falling by the wayside because they just they're just too broad and people aren't consuming things in that way anymore and maybe you pay more money than you would normally for something really niche and interesting that you feel part of and you love it and you're really excited about getting it whereas actually your standard old generalist magazine you don't kind of need anymore because actually you can get it all online and and it's it's faster there so and it's really exciting because rather than seeing the other emerging magazines as competitors mm. there's actually support in the fact that there is a niche where people are wanting it that... I completely agree there's a real solidarity among the indie magazines it's really nice and we're just just starting to make kind of connections between us and figuring out if there's stuff that we can do to support one another one really big thing that we think about doing is we're going to do a delayed gratification academy and we're just going to kind of do week long magazine masterclasses for people who want to start their own magazines so people will come in for five days um, to our offices and we'll have like a maximum of eight people we'll just teach people how to put a magazine together and, and we'll get lots of people into give talks and kind of good contacts and stuff like that yeah so we're working on that I think that's going to be really really good and I think there's a lot of appetite for it out there and you know if you so if you're doing a, a sort of three year BA in journalism or magazine journalism you're going to end up 50 grand in debt and I do think there's an appetite for people who would like to try it out for a few hundred pounds before kind of embarking on that massive investment but then I think there's those people also who just, you know, have always wanted to do it, not quite sure how to start, and things like that. Yeah, so I think that would be really good. It's encouraging people to realise, you know, like passion boards wanting to crap on about it, but yeah. it's realising your passion. Yeah, exactly right. And it's accessible. Exactly right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there, always, there is also, you know, there's tons of people who will buy indie magazines. I think the real thing is reaching them. Probably about 60% of our sales come from the UK but then actually we've got um, really really big sales in Australia in Scandinavia in the US and we're really going to develop that one question that I always like to ask people is what bit of advice do you would you give someone that was thinking about doing something similar? I would definitely say that you shouldn't be put off. It's not as difficult as it seems. You know, it is quite possible. There are certain kind of money barriers to doing it in a way, but actually if you follow a subscription model and you sell, sell, sell to your friends and family and you get the word out, you, know, you can get all that money up front. That kind of gives you a nice bit of cash flow and gives you a good boost. In. So it doesn't have to be ruinously expensive at, at first, as long as you can kind of keep it going. You know, you just need a laptop, you know, in your dining room. You don't actually need an office you know, to, to produce a magazine. Really, your, your costs are all bound up in, in paper. And there's different things you can do as well. It doesn't have to be like us. It's a really big magazine. There's people doing sort of, you know, 36-page ones and, and selling them for £5 and making money. It's doable. 
But I think it's just that kind of classic business thing, isn't it? Like, if you can't pitch your idea in a sentence, then it's not quite right. That's really good advice. I think that's, that's probably the thing, isn't it? So, and if you have got an idea like that, and if you tell it to your mates, they're like, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd buy that. That sounds brilliant. Then you might well be onto something. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd go for it. You've been listening to Passion Pod 20 with delayed gratification. 